Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my day. Hammer all my day. Welcome to part two of our discussion about Charlie Chaplin with the film director, screenwriter, and producer Martin Brest. Few individuals did more to shape modern cinema than the actor, director, and producer Charlie Chaplin. One of the greatest of all comic mimes, he also pioneered cinematic techniques and storytelling. His films with his iconic role as the beleaguered little tramp with baggy trousers, mustache, cane, and bowler hat were not only comic masterpieces, but unflinching looks at poverty, unemployment, capitalist exploitation, the callousness of authority, the search for meaning and dignity in a hostile world, and the yearning for love and acceptance. He argued that drama should be derived from the close observation of life. He refused to follow the conventions, including the penchant for exaggerated melodrama, perfecting his work with hundreds of takes, subtle acting, and nuanced facial expressions. He created full-length feature films with highly crafted plots and characters. He strove, he said, to put across the philosophical doubt I feel about things and people. His films, he said, were a metaphysical exercise, an attempt to unmask as absurd and antiquated and unfair to humanity the idea that there exists a cosmos where humans were held responsible for their actions or the results of their actions. The French filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard wrote of Chaplin that while remaining marginal to the rest of cinema, he ended up filling this margin with more things. What other word can one use? Ideas, gags, intelligence, honor, beauty, movement, than all directors together have put in a whole book. Chaplin, the most famous silent film star of his era, swiftly earned the enmity of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, who saw in his poignant portrayals of the marginalized and forgotten political subversion. The FBI, which began investigating Chaplin in 1922 and would amass an FBI file of 1,900 pages on him for his alleged communist sympathies, finally drove him into exile. In 1952, while Chaplin was in London for the premiere of his film Limelight, the U.S. Attorney General revoked Chaplin's re-entry permit. This ended his Hollywood career. He would spend the rest of his life in Switzerland. Joining me to discuss the importance and legacy of Charlie Chaplin in this second series on Chaplin is the film director, screenwriter, and producer Martin Brest. Martin has directed numerous films, some of which include Midnight Run with Robert De Niro, which was nominated for Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture, and Son of a Woman with Al Pacino, which won a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture, as well as four Academy Award nominations with Pacino winning for Best Actor and the blockbuster Beverly Hills Cop, nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture and the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. So last week we talked about Charlie Chaplin's beginnings in the film industry. Uh, he very quickly becomes a phenomena. Uh, he is able to command higher and higher salaries, and he breaks away and forms his own production company, um, and this allows his kind of creative genius to 
flourish. Explain what happened. Well, it, there were some a couple of uh, uh, starts and stops, but eventually he was able to get financing at a level and independence at a level where he could build his own studio. Which and, and we should be clear, this is big money. I mean, I think I was he was getting like ten thousand dollars a week in nineteen twenty. Yeah, I mean, I think his. I don't recall, but when he was signed with United Artists, which he formed with Douglas Fairbanks and D.W. Griffith and Mary Pickford, um, a company that still exists. Um, well, let's talk about why they formed it, because the, the, all the, they conspired to drive down the salaries. Yeah. So, I mean, you can explain what happened. Yeah, well, that's for that reason, to yeah. have independence. and Because and they were going to form a kind of monopoly among all the major mm -hmm. studios so they wouldn't pay Douglas Fairbanks mm -hmm. and uh, Mary Pickford and, and Chaplin the money that they were making. And that's why they formed United Artists. Yeah. I mean, the idea of artists running their own company yeah. was phenomenally revolutionary. And this was very early on in the history of the film business. All this, everybody was inventing everything uh, on the fly. Um, but he got the financing and was able to build his own studio, which still exists. It's virtually intact uh, on uh, La Brea Avenue in Los Angeles. I mean, it's just as he left it, sort of. And uh, in that studio, he was able to uh, make movies at his own pace. And the way he made films at this point in his career were sort of the way uh, a novelist might make it. Like you sit down and you write and then you well, you think about it for a while and a couple of days later, you may say, no, I'm going to throw that out and, and, and redo it and then take that and try and come up with another thing. You know, he did it in a very free and uh, improvised way. Well, he could also film f for weeks, decide it's no good and trash the whole thing. Yeah, and he had everybody on staff full time. Yeah cameramen, carpenters, actors. His, he had his company of people. I mean, a lot of these movies, the more you see them, you can identify the same yeah. people in multiple yeah, roles. Yeah. Uh, you just had these people around and they could fill any slot that he came up with. In fact, there are uh, production reports, uh, which have it's a, something they still do, which is every day on a movie, somebody has to fill out, you know, we started at uh, 8.45, and the first shot uh, was at 9.21, and uh, it was uh, X long, and we shot 20 takes of it, you know, and so and you know, these various actors were here, and this actor wasn't used until 1 o'clock, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Little uh, reports of the production every day. They're filed with the studio. I read the production logs of City Lights because it's one of my favorite films of all time, if not the top favorite. And I know it intimately. And I read the logs of every day of the sh shooting. And there are hundreds of them. The movie shot for infinitely longer than any movie would shoot. They shut down for weeks and weeks while he thought and everybody was on salary. And it was just spectacular. What did you learn from the logs? Well, given how flawlessly the fi the final movie, uh, uh, how flawless it is, 
it was amazing to see how fracturous its creation was. Not fracturous in a negative way, but how the process was, I once read that Chaplin said that making a movie or, or writing a script is sort of like, it's not sitting down and just doing it. It was sort of, I think he likened it to a guy who sits in a forest working for the forest service with binoculars, huh. like looking for little like smoke things. You know, it was, it's just about looking for a little thing here and looking for a little thing there and looking for a little thing there and waiting to find another one and then putting them all together later on as opposed to just writing it, shooting it, and there it is. So to see the the battles uh, and the the struggles of putting together uh, various ideas that work seamlessly in the final movie was a revelation. Certainly nothing that could happen. It couldn't even happen at that time anywhere else, let alone in the future as uh, uh, filmmaking became more industrialized. I want to read this passage from Robinson's book. He said, Chaplin's comedy was created from within. What the audience saw in him was the expression of thoughts and feelings, and the comedy lay in the relation of those thoughts and feelings to the things that happened around him. A crucial point of Chaplin's comedy was not the comic occurrence itself, but Chaplin's relationship and attitude to it. In the Keystone style, it was enough to bump into a tree to be funny. When Chaplin bumped into a tree, however, it was not the collision that was funny, but the fact that he raised his hat to the tree in a reflex gesture of apology. The essential difference between the Keystone style and Chaplin's comedy is that one depends on exposition and the other on expression. While the expository style may rely upon such codes and recognizable conventions, as the keystone mime. The expressive style is instantly and universally understood. That was the essential factor in Chaplin's almost instant and worldwide fame. Yeah, that's pretty sharp. Um, you know, the keystone style, the keystone cops, you know, the, you sort of looked at the event, you watched it, and it was funny, and it was interesting, and it was uh, thrilling. But Chaplin's thing, as I said uh, earlier, he bonds your uh, spirit to his spirit. And once that bond occurs, the way his spirit regards any episode, particularly within a comedic situation, means so much more to you because you're not just watching the event. You're, you're watching it through his soul. Your soul has, has been grafted onto his, which is magical. So whatever dilemma he's going through, you're going through with him. And as he struggles, you're struggling. As he makes little victories, you feel victorious. Uh, as he exercises a, a miraculous bit of grace and uh, acrobatics, you feel sort of elevated. Um, that was kind of magical. And when you uh, uh, extrapolate that out over the course of a, of a larger story, story that has the potential to be very moving, the uh, accumulation of your bonded experiences with the character reach great heights, like the ending of City Lights. We'll talk about that. It's certainly one of the great moments in film, yeah, without question. one of the greatest. Um, so you watch this as a director and a screenwriter. What did you take from it for your own work? 
Well, when I first saw his films in my early teens, they were only available in theaters uh, that were doing revivals. And I was fortunate enough to be taken to one at the age of 13 or 14 by my brother-in-law, which was like the first set of Chaplin revivals in the early 60s, mid-60s, somewhere. Um, I was thunderstruck. As a, I was never interested in movies. I never thought about movies. I was a kid in the Bronx. Movies were, you know, nobody was, you know, nobody was not a blue-collar worker. It, had, it was not Yiddish, my Yiddish-speaking family? Yiddish-speaking family, Yiddish-speaking neighborhood. You know, America was like a strange concept far off. So my relationship to movies was uh, non-existent. But the emotional impact of watching these films, which were beyond funny, you know, the, what I watched was City Lights and Modern Times and The Gold Rush as a young— well, let's be clear. I mean, he, he'll break your heart, too. Yeah. And he broke my heart as a kid. I, I, not, I had never had that experience at a film. So my, my first experience with him was being, you know, of course the movies were brilliantly funny, but they made me cry in a way. And I had never cried in a movie. I was a kid. I mean, I'm, you know, Bronx kid. They, they made me, they devastated well, me. Well, there's that scene in The Gold Rush, the New Year's Eve party, mm -hmm. where no one shows up. Right. Yeah. Devastating. That was amazing to feel, to be made to feel that intensely was for me a revelation. I didn't know what it was. It took me forever to, to figure it out. Uh, but it, it was whatever the opposite of a trauma is. It was, a, a, you know, something that branded my soul, but in the sweetest way. Uh, and as I started to discover filmmaking in, in college uh, and late high school and, and college, I, you know, it wasn't because of the Chaplin things, but I was sort of, I felt that there was something there that I wanted to eventually be able to do. I, I, wanted, a, I wanted to create an emotion, not, a, not to make people cry, but I wanted to create that kind of poignant moment, which I may have done here and there. That means very rarely in some of the things I did. Um, but it came from that experience. Uh, the, the other thing that— Well, Son of a Woman. I think you achieved that. Maybe, film, maybe. Don't you? Um, but, you know, it's interesting because Pacino— uh, in general, and in, in that incentive of a woman, he also has the ability to to, to graft his emotional mm. dilemma with the audience. Aside from being, you know, just an insanely brilliant actor who's capable of finding things in, in material that nobody else can find, he has a way of just like taking your soul and, and, and bonding it to his. Uh, so you're not just looking at him; you're you're somehow with him in a in some ineffable way. Um, so the other thing that that I I learned without even knowing it is particularly in the silent movies, or some of the silent movies have music that he put in. He the manner in which he directs your attention. 
not your attention to story, but your emotional attention. He takes it and moves it here, and then he moves it here. The waits a while, and then he moves it here. And you you find your emotional involvement uh, dancing along with the story through, you know, to created very specifically with his writing and performing. And, uh, but that, uh, that architecture of audience, of an audience's emotional involvement, the architecture of how that plays out, I, I uh, felt very strongly from his work. And it influenced me in developing scripts and, and figuring out how to lay out a movie. Well, let let a, me ask you technically. So as somebody, as a writer, when you deal with emotion, uh, high, really, uh, you know, intense emotion, um, you obviously have to write very carefully. But you also, in order to bring it to a crescendo, and I'm curious whether this is true in film, there is a kind of you step forward emotionally and then you have to retreat a little bit. You step forward emotionally you go, until you bring the crescendo. You can't, if you, if you go too far, it becomes sentimental. Uh, so I wrote a story for the New York Times about a soldier making his last call home to his wife before the first Gulf War, and they end up talking about if he's killed, where he'll be buried. But in order to uh, essentially build to the end of the story, you had to pull back and describe the trucks in the street. And is that, does that relate to when you write a script? Well, when I work on a project, uh, and there's various uh, processes in the project that would deal with what you're just talking about, the writing, the directing, the editing, the music, you know, where there's music, where there's not music, what does the music do? Um, there's many uh, uh, passes through which you deal with architecting what you're talking about. But ultimately, I think it's intuitive in a way. Um, and each process, the writing, the directing, the editing, the music, allows you uh, uh, many chances to revise. Um, you know, there was a scene in Scent of a Woman where Al Pacino is at the end of his rope and he just kind of blindly, no pun intended, crosses Park Avenue yeah. with cars going yeah, yeah, all around them. Yeah, yeah. And it's, an, it, it's a kind of a powerful scene. And we were laying out the music for it. And and in, in laying out the music, you know, we had, you know, I had done a temporary music track for the whole movie. So I, you know, using existing music. So I kind of knew what kind of music I want, where themes should repeat, where things should be this, where themes should be that, that kind of thing. So I, when I started to uh, sit down with the composer and work it, I already had, you know, sort of done a, a mock-up in a way. So we knew kind of what theme was going to be played during that scene. And the composer w would... You know, he would uh, create it on a synthesizer. You know, I forgot what it's called. Uh, uh, and you know, you could you could work with it. You could say, "Oh, it's too fast. It's too slow. It should end a little earlier." What happens if we end it a little earlier? What part do you have to cut out, or did you just pick up the pace? You know, you could sculpt it using all the components before you actually orchestrate it and sit down with the orchestra, which you got to do very quickly. You can't fool around at that stage. So when we were laying that out. There was a string section, and there was a brass section, and a woodwind section, and this and that, and this and that. And they were all on different tracks. 
And I looked at it and it was this big grand piece of music. And I said, what happens if we cut out everything except for the strings, which are an accompaniment? They're not really intended to, and we just, just clicked off all the tracks and this was in the mock-up stage and it was just the strings and it was great. It was like, an, uh, so the reason I bring, and that's what we wound up doing. So the reason I bring that up is because the ability to architect the audience's emotional engagement, there's many different uh, uh, processes along the way where you could sort of, you have a chance to mold that, revise it, change it from your original intention, et cetera, et cetera. I want to talk about dignity because before we get into his major films, um, the, the world is a hostile place in most Chaplin films. Uh, the capitalist class is, exploits and is ruthless. The upper classes, uh, if you're poor, you don't exist. There's that scene in uh, City Lights of the blind flower girl is mm -hmm. about to get evicted. Um, it's heartless. And of course, as a tramp, he never has any money. He's constantly being thrown out of places. And as I said before, he, he actually steals money for the blind flower mm -hmm. girl and ends up going to jail. Um, but it is this- Actually, it, he doesn't steal it. He's given it. Yes, that's true. But he's accused <laughs> but, of stealing right. it. Yes, that's correct. So, but th you know, it's, it's this avalanche of humiliation and mm -hmm. abuse but he clings to his dignity. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to that, and uh, I wonder to what extent that, uh, you know, uh, struggle to retain dignity in the face of a hostile world is an important element in terms of, because we're, we all live in a hostile world. It Some may of, be his life's theme in a strange way. Mm. I mean, to come from what he came from, which was indignity heaped upon indignity, and then to be able to become the most successful performer in the history of humanity, but, but it was only eight years, his past was only eight years prior. You know, it was still haunting him. And it was the determining, it was how he had spent most of his life at that point in his life. Uh, could not help but just haunt him constantly. And it's in his work all the time. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny moment. It's not even, it's not even a moment. It's like a subtle thing in, that it's always struck me. In uh, modern times, he's, I think he's outside a factory and there's a little labor unrest and this cop is pushing him. And so he moves. And the cop pushes him again. And he moves, but it's like he, and then a cop pushes him again. And he does this thing to the cop like, okay, I got it. I'm going to move, but I got it. It was like in that little movement, he says everything about the powerless, wanting to keep their dignity, but not wanting to be abused again, but knowing they can't really do anything about it. It's such a telling moment. Mm. It's so tiny. It's not integral to the thing, but it has such a ring of truth. It just it yeah. burnt into my psyche. So he builds his own studio. He has pretty much unlimited money. He, he, and he starts making these remarkable films. We talked about A Dog's Life, which is 
wonderful. I didn't like the ending, but the rest of the film <laughs> I loved. Well, it was just too neat. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's it's incredible. Uh, the kid, which is incredible. Let's talk about the big the big films. Uh, maybe you know, the kid of- just because uh, I saw it last night again, uh, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is about an unwed mother. Mm. That's pretty that's wild. Right. Yeah, that's right. And it says her only sin. Yeah, you know, in that her time, only sin is motherhood. Yeah. That was wild. Yeah, as she comes out of the foundling, she's thrown yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was just, I was watching it. I was uh, in a puddle of tears. Well, the, the uh, you know, he, there's that scene in The Immigrant where it's just beautiful. So these immigrants are coming in on a boat mm-hmm. and they're all seasick and the boat's rocking. They get to the Statue of Liberty and it says Land of Liberty. And then the next scene is they're all being by immigration officials tied with a rope. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just moments like that. Yeah. He, he, he knew so intimately the powerlessness yeah. a- and also the hopes and dreams. I mean, they were always there together. Yeah. It was not a contrivance. It was, I mean, it's rare that you see uh, a theme in an artist that's that consistent, that's that uh, honestly earned. I mean, it really mm-hmm. is the theme of his life. Dickens had that. Yeah, and right. And also sent to the workhouse as a boy mm-hmm. with his father. Well, let's talk about some of those last great films, The Gold Rush, The Circus, that scene mm-hmm. in the cage is just fall down funny. I mean, I just it's hilarious. Insane. It's so funny. It's insane. Um, but again, you know, the, the circus master is a tyrant. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a horrible, abusive father mm-hmm. to his daughter, exploiting chaplain um uh but let, maybe we'll talk about those the, the the gold rush the circus that has the, another uh, i'll just the circus has another extraordinary meta scene in it which is uh you know he he's like the janitor and they want to use him he's in the a props com- guy yeah and they want to use <laughs> right. him in a comedy act they need somebody right, for this right. comedy act so somebody's ex- and and, it, and it's a really cornball thing and they're teaching him how to do it and they're trying to explain to him why it's funny and he doesn't understand. Right, right. So here's like the greatest com- right. comedian, you know, the world has ever known being taught how right, this right. stupid thing is funny and that his idea right. isn't funny. It has to be this other way. It's, it's genius beyond genius. Let's talk about those, the, the, the city lights, which we both adore modern times, which is so prescient. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's about, uh, you know, reducing human beings to cogs within a industrial society, constant vigilance. There's the scene where he uh, he's a worker. He has a nervous breakdown finally on the production line, but he goes into the bathroom to get a smoke, and suddenly the boss's face flashes on the screen uh-huh. in the bathroom and tells him to get back to work. Well, that's precisely what Amazon does to its workers. He was so prescient about where technological and industrial society would go, how dehumanizing it was, and, and what it would do. Um, and it, this is, of course, why Jagger Hoover, who wasn't even the head of the FBI in 1922, opened a file on him uh, and eventually hounding him out of the country. But let's talk about those films because they're, they're artistically amazing. They're often incredibly funny, um, but they're also deadly serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're just great works of art. There, he really uh, he was capable of creating uh, comedy, which is sort of a dopey word, 
at a level that no that that was a, astounding. I, I think when people would laugh at something in a Chaplin movie, it wasn't just because it was funny. It was because it was astounding. It was just like they never saw anything. They never thought of that. They never saw anything like that before. So uh, he could do that, and he laboriously you know, sculpted those occurrences. But uh, he, had, he, he was out for bigger fish. And, he, and I think what he was able to do is marry the two in a way that was just devastating. He was able to, to take big themes, simplify them enough so that they could be digestible and accessible without, without lowering uh, the, the thought quality of them and marry them to humor in a way that was just, I mean, extraordinary. And yet he didn't, although he clearly stood on the side of the poor, he never romanticized the poor. Um, those scenes are always filled with pickpockets and thugs yeah. and women engaging in prostitution. He and, didn't have to romanticize the poor because he was yeah. he had been poor. Right. He he. But earned, I think that's part of the power of the. There's nothing. It 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 has such poignant reality. I mean, it reminds me of Chekhov, his great story, The Peasants, where and Chekhov knew also grew up poor, and then but also even though he was a famous writer, he was trained as a doctor, and he. Uh, until he died of tuberculosis, he treated the poor. So he was mm -hmm. in their hovels and homes. And he writes this devastating, one of the greatest short stories ever written called The Peasants, where like Chaplin, he doesn't flinch. And yet at the end, your heart breaks mm -hmm. for them. And I think Chaplin achieves that. Yeah. I mean, th th there's a level of perfection. I mean, I know the film so well. And there's certain moments in certain of the films, particularly the ones we're talking about, where the moment is so perfect, comedic moments, that I don't laugh, I cry. Mm. I cry because it's just, I mean, I don't cry, I tear up at the sheer, like once in a lifetime perfection of the concept. Like there's one where um, after he meets the blind flower girl, and he f kind of falls for her, and he goes away, and then he hides behind a pillar, and he's kind right. of watching her. Right. So it's kind of naughty that he's kind right, of right, like right. watching her, and, and he's very close to her, and, and she's rinsing out her yeah, little yeah. flower pail. And it's so heartbreaking and heartbreaking, and, and then she like dumps you know the water Throws out of the pail right into his face. <laughs> like the genius of that slapstick comedic moment at the moment when you're just, your heart is breaking, and then you get hit with that other thing. It's so exquisite that it brings tears to my eyes. That's but I think, it, I think it goes back to what I was talking about in that you, you, you achieve a, a moment of pathos, but you don't go too far, which gives the, and we should talk about the ending of the film, mm -hmm. which is truly remarkable. and certainly one of the most powerful mm -hmm. pieces of cinema I've ever seen. Uh, he, w people should watch the film, but he, she's blind, so she doesn't know she, he's a tramp. And he eventually comes into money and he pays for her operation. And she has dreams of her benefactor reappearing. And mm -hmm. right before she sees Chaplin, who's just come out of prison, and so his, his coat's frayed and he's dirty and he's uh, a, a very elegant man comes into the shop and she thinks that might be the benefactor. Mm -hmm. well, well, let's talk about the ending. It's, I mean, I think that might be his, for me, his most perfect film. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, 
Well, it's interesting. I saw it when I was a kid, and it devast and I and once I saw it, it devastated me. The ending devastated me, and I didn't understand it. I did like I was so overwhelmed as a kid. I didn't understand what I was seeing, and it took me many times as a teenager to you know to track it down and resee it, and and then you know it's kind of obvious on a surface level what it means. But then I wondered, what does it really mean that she realizes that the person that gave her back her sight is this disheveled, impoverished, little, dirty man rather than some handsome uh, captain of industry? What does it mean when she realizes that and and she realizes this is the person that she owes everything to. And it means so many things. Could she ever be with him? I don't know. Could that ever happen? Well, that's happen? the You don't sense. She doesn't run out the door after him. No. I mean, I mean it, the last line, you know, he says to her, uh, so you can see now. Yeah. And she says, I can see. Yeah. So that line, you know, that line just says every imaginable thing. Yes, yeah, she can see now. Her eyes are fixed. Uh but she can see that the person that she was mocking, she was mocking him a little earlier. Yes, that's scene. right. So uh, now she could see the, uh, you know, the... Uh, and he's mocked on the way in by the newspaper yeah. boys who are making fun of him. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing you could write endlessly about. It's, a, it's an ending that has... It's, it's hard to speak about it without no. knowing if people really understand what the lead-in is. But it is, without a doubt, one of the highest points of movie making. Um, I mean, that in modern times, they're very different films. Modern times is so prescient of where we're headed, mm-hmm. where, where we've ended up. Uh, and, you know, he, he foresaw it all. And the alienation, uh, the, the, the cruelty of large mm-hmm. industry. Um, let's talk a little bit about modern times. And then I want to finish by talking about the inheritance, what directors and writers like yourself have taken from Chaplin? Well, Modern Times is, first of all, after making City Lights, uh, which has one of my favorite, there's a photograph of the premiere of City Lights of him and Albert Einstein. Who was he his, took Mr. and Mrs. Einstein with him. That's right, right. The idea of Charlie <laughs> Chaplin and Albert Einstein right. together is just... Well, he, you know, he, he, although he didn't have much formal education, he read voraciously yeah, yeah. i mean and serious schopenhauer i mean he he yeah. obviously was yeah intellectually had deep depth yeah but um i mean modern times is an extraordinary movie for a million reasons the comedic pre- uh situations and the development of all of that well the, and the opening with you know so they they're unveiling mm-hmm. a statue and he makes fun now we've had al jolson's the jazz singers come out uh, silent movies are relegated uh, essentially uh, to the trash heap and the eyes of the filmmaking industry, and he won't relent. So there's sound. There's been there's... sound for almost nine years at that point. So the idea of making a silent yeah. movie. Well, but... it's not silent. I mean, there no, is no. sound in it, but there's right. no speaking. Yeah. So like, for instance, when... I mean, people talk and their mouths well, move it's and the, they it's don't this... hear. Well, the beginning, Sometime, yeah, yeah. the beginning there, it's like this tinny saxophone Kazooie. sound, yeah. and he's making fun of talkies mm-hmm. because the sound is quality right. isn't very good. 
uh, and then they unveil this statue to peace and prosperity again. And when they lift off the uh, cover, there's the tramp who's decided to sleep in the arms of the statue mm -hmm. for the night. Yeah, it, the, it's just a, 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 an exquisite, exquisite film. Very moving also. Um, You know, everybody that's seen it remembers the scene of him going into the machine. Yeah. He gets which is an insane. sucked right into the machine. Into yeah. the gears of the machine. Yeah, when yeah. he comes out, he's like, he's a little shattered by it. I mean, it's such an exquisite metaphor, a hilariously comedic metaphor for what that industrialization was doing to people at that time, which is when people were coming off the farms. Live, living that kind of life and going to the cities and, you know, working in dark factories, nerdy, uh, noisy, dirty factories. Um, exquisite metaphor. Um, and again, it was a, it was a film without dialogue other than this, this, these sound effects, which nobody was able to do. Not one person was allowed not that and it was a huge success. Monstrous. But nobody could even pull it off. Nobody was allowed to do it. Nobody would be financed to do it, you know, at that point in time. And nobody had ever heard Charlie Chaplin's voice. Until he, the great dictator, right? No. He was the biggest star, you know, for 20 years on the planet. And nobody had ever heard but his he, voice. He, he felt and so in this film, finally... People were going to hear his voice, and it comes towards the very, very end of the movie, where he, he this sings. Movie where you see people talking and don't hear any sound come out of their mouth, where he has to sing, in order to earn his keep and you know not be homeless anymore. And they build up all this expectation, and Charlie Chaplin's going to sing. We're going to hear his voice. And not even in English; it's some it, invented, it, language. a totally invented language. Because of, that is required because of various circumstances in the plot. But this, this scene is spectacular on its own. But when you view it through the filter of knowing that this is the first time, mm. that this is how he solved the problem of, of that character speaking after being most famous character mm. forever, and he was always afraid if that character spoke, it would destroy the whole thing. And there's a lot of truth to that. He didn't, he didn't trust the the quote-unquote talkies. He didn't like it. He thought well, it was destructive to his art. It was, it, to his art. Yeah. It was. And in fact, the the great dictator, which came which after that. Which he did that, speak. 19, uh, was it 1940? Which is a proper talkie, uh, is oddly awkward because Chaplin was such a master of a certain kind of filmmaking and he invented it when it didn't exist before and he mastered it. And then... In his mature years, he decided to, you know, in, in, uh, work in this other realm of talkies. It's off. It's like he mm. didn't know how to do it or didn't want to know how to do it, didn't want to go with it completely. So it's this hybrid thing and it's, it's off. It's well, off. in the end, it just ends with this, basically a speech to the audience. Yeah. I mean, the film is incredibly important for a million well, and reasons. very courageous because yeah. he was going after nazi fascism before the war started yeah uh I, and everybody was trying to stop that film from going and, into and the character was jewish yeah 
in a in a shtetl or a ghetto yeah, or something. Yeah. In a ghetto. Yeah. I mean, there's a million reasons. That was an insanely brave movie. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it has wonderful parts in it, but it's mm. it's it's creaky in a way his other movies aren't. But that's okay. Let's talk about so you in the film industry. What have you taken from Chaplin? Oh well, first of all. I mean, it would be uh, presumptuous to even assume I took anything from them because that would imply that I have What do you I mean? All it. writers You're are thieves, that. Marty. I'm sure it's the same with film directors. I mean, <laughs> I think that there, anybody of a certain age um, that's at all involved in, in movies that are of, I guess they're comedies. I, though I find I loathe that word comedy because it's so restrictive. But you couldn't help but being influenced. You know, certainly the generation just before mine was deeply influenced. The influences uh, taper off as time goes on. But, but the, wouldn't you see Woody Allen pulling a lot from Chaplin? Actually, I find him more, uh, he, he comes from a different school, I would say, mm. of the uh, Marx Brothers school, which is a completely mm. different, uh, I mean, uh, yes, there's some Chaplin, but more of the Marx Brothers mm. school, which is a more verbal, uh, uh, absurdist um, uh, tradition. Yeah, I think that's a, maybe a bigger influence, I think. And can you think of certain Chaplin scenes or moments that inspired moments or scenes in your own films? Yes. <laughs> well, the... Uh, The one that comes to mind, which is, was uh, the end of City Lights, the idea of a, a essentially nonverbal scene where one character has a revelation about another character that's devastating. I, I took a little drop of that and used it for a scene towards the end of Meet Joe Black. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't compare the two at all, but the inspiration for uh, clearly comes from the end of City Lights, where one character realizes something that they don't really have, that they weren't told. And they don't really, like at the end of City Lights, she has no reason to know that he's the guy that saved her sight, other than touching his hand. Touches his hand, that's which how is, she. Which is kind of a subtle bit of license. But it works. It's some sort of. It implies that there's this, uh, there's this insanely powerful connection between these two people that the, just the touch would let her know who he is. And of course, we should add that when she's blind, she thinks he's wealthy. Right. She thinks he's a gentleman. Right. Handsome. She thinks he has a car. Right. She has this. Right. Yeah. So that idea I've always found very potent, and in fact, I constructed a whole part of the film in order to get to do that to where one character would have a revelation that they're really, that they're magically imbued with. They're not really told it, but the circumstances are such that they see something and, uh, you know, it doesn't work as electrically as Chaplin. So I once asked you about Orson Welles, why he kept editing, editing, you know, after he was essentially pushed out of Hollywood, he would do these low-budget films, and he would 
just and and you said I think you told me that you're never happy. It's always this striving for a kind of unattainable perfection. I'm not. I don't remember the conversation exactly, but with editing, I've noticed that you edit, edit, edit. You know, keep trying to make it better, make it better, make it better, make it better. This is what Chaplin did. Yeah, and then you it, you try something and it's worse, so you put it back. Try another thing, mm. it's worse. You put it back, you, and you realize, okay, you've hit the wall. Now, anything you do to try and fine tune it—that's the same with writing, by the way. Especially when you get tired, you begin actually damaging your own work. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you think it's perfect. No, but it means you've hit the wall. It means you just can't do anymore. Right. <laughs> Right. And you also can't go back and look at it again. Right. Yeah. What about in terms of acting technique? Has that translated into films that you've done, things you've seen in Chaplin? Well, in a way, in in a sense that you know, Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy. Uh, and we should be clear that Stan Laurel was also British, also on vaudeville, and actually was. Yeah, close it, to Chaplin. They were uh, in the same uh, traveling troupe. Yes, uh, and I think uh, Stan Laurel was uh, Chaplin's understudy in certain shows. Um, but the humor, again, in Chaplin is is how he's um, regarding something, like something happens, and what he thinks of it mm. is the is the point. And when he changes his mind, that's the point how he regards the various uh, beats of the situation becomes like the plot line in some strange way. So that dynamic affected how I would uh, construct scenes both on the page and uh, on this, uh, uh, while directing. I would look for a lot of the, uh, the humor in, in things that I've done has to do with how people regard each other mm. and how that regarding changes. Uh, Can you, know, you give me a concrete example of that? Well, a simplistic example would be uh, in Beverly Hills Cop, there's these two, um, there's Eddie Murphy and then these, these two Beverly Hills Cops. And there's John Ashton, who's the, the grizzled guy in this, uh, Judge Reinhold, who's the you know the, the holy fool, and you know it's sort of a Laurel and Hardy kind of combination. And uh, if Judge Reinhold did something, the way John Ashton thought about him, even if he didn't say anything, was hmm. the humor, sort of like that. The you know so how they regarded each other, uh, you know, and, and that that. Uh, technique that device was sort of reserved in the movie, pretty much for them. Uh, but it's something that I re that I got from silent films, from Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy. That it's a way of constructing a uh, a humorful moment. I mean, so much of Chaplin's humor was physical, and I don't know that we see that so much. No, in contemporary films. No, it's not of a different era, of a different era. I always thought it would be fun to do something like that. I mean, first of all, the, the tradition he comes from and the, uh, the years and years and years of working in that tradition, coupled with his once-in-a-century genius, uh, 
produced a facility that mm. will never occur again. Uh, so it's really undoable to that extent. I think there are some comedies that are are were that are kind of or that that were in the eighties and nineties that use that kind of physicality. A guy like Jim Carrey would do it. It's a different tradition. I mean, it's always changing. But even though Chaplin was very physical, it was always in service of this involvement you had and how that's affecting you. And the physicality was a, a way to like rope you in and keep you engaged. But what was really going on was this internal game, I believe. Great, thanks. I was film director, screenwriter, and producer, Martin Brest. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. Thank you.